warning, this episode includes mention of suicide. In the complex and compelling French film Anatomy of a Fall, a husband is dead and his wife is the chief suspect. The investigation and trial exposed the many rifts in their marriage, but did those rifts drive him to suicide or her to murder? As the evidence mounts and her fate is argued, the couple's young son yearns to understand what happened and why, and we are right there with him. I'm Glenn Weldon, and today we're talking about Anatomy of a Fall on Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Third Love. Third Love makes solutions for every bra problem. Give yourself more lift, smoothing, and get straps that stay put. Every style's wear-tested on real women, made from premium materials, with a virtual fitting room to help you find your perfect fit. Comfort and support are guaranteed. It's time to get your problem solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get $15 off your order with code PODCAST15. This message comes from NPR sponsor FX, presenting Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX is clipped, now streaming only on Hulu. Support for NPR and the following message come from Betterment, the automated investing and savings app. CEO Sarah Levy explains how Betterment's technology helps investors better understand and save on taxes. So taxes are a real cost of investing, as are fees. Understanding your after-tax, after-fee returns is really what's important for investors. An example would be when you buy and sell uh, securities frequently, you can pay a lot of taxes because short-term capital gains, meaning I bought it and I sold it fairly quickly, have higher taxes than long-term capital gains. Our technology in particular will tell you what the tax implication of a particular move you'd like to make is going to be before you make that move so that you're making it with full transparency. Learn more at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk. Performance not guaranteed. Joining me today is NPR film critic Bob Mondello. Hey, Bob. Good to be here. Good to have you. Also with us is the Philadelphia Inquirer's arts and entertainment editor and film critic, Badatri D. Chaudhry. Hey, Badatri, welcome back. Hello. Thank you so much. Great to have you. Anatomy of a Fall begins with a family under tension. Sandra Huller plays Sandra. She's a German writer who recently relocated to the French Alps with her husband Samuel and their 11-year-old son. Samuel, played by Samuel Tisse, is also a writer, but she is a lot more successful than he is, a fact that causes stress fractures in their marriage. When Samuel is found dead by their visually impaired son Daniel, played by Milo Machado Grenier, it's unclear whether he fell from the attic window of their chalet, or if he jumped, or if he was pushed. Sandra becomes the chief suspect in Samuel's murder, though she maintains her innocence, and she hires an old romantic partner played by Swan Arlo as her defense lawyer. The movie is more than a courtroom drama, though it is very much that. It's also a dissection of a failed marriage, of broken trust and simmering resentments and unwilling compromises... And it includes several discussions about the nature of fiction, because this movie is, you will recall, French. <laughs> Anatomy of a Fall was directed by Justine Trier. She co-wrote it with Arthur Harari. It's her fourth film. 
and it won the Palme d'Or at this year's Cannes Film Festival, making it only the third film directed by a woman to win that top prize. Anatomy of a Fall is in theaters now. Bob Mandela, what'd you think? Oh, I thought it was wonderful. And it's interesting to note, although the film won the Palme d'Or, it is not going to be France's nominee when it comes time to do the Oscars. Yeah. But this one is a sprightly two and a half hours, right? It's really tricky to describe what happens at the beginning of this movie. <laughs> it's really tricky. Yep. And then it turns into a courtroom drama, but that's misrepresenting it in a way, too. Exactly. Yeah. It, it is doing a lot of different things all at once. It's a really interesting anatomy of a marriage. It absolutely is. Badatri, what's your take? You know, when you see the poster, when you hear the name, obviously you're thinking of Otto Preminger, you're thinking of anatomy of a murder. Yeah. So I went in kind of expecting that kind of forensic, mm. detail-driven storytelling. It does a disservice to the film to call it a courtroom drama. Yeah. Um, Two and a half hours. Well, disclaimer, I watched it at a 10 p.m. screening. So, Did you see the um, last half hour? <laughs> I did. I did. I stayed up. In fact, like I did think there's a problem with the pacing. I think at the beginning of it, there's too much time spent on fitting in too much data. Hmm. You know, I, I was like, oh, my God, I hope I stay up through all of it. But then suddenly I'm hooked. I think Sandra Huller is a goddess. Like right. she gives one of the best performances we've seen this year mm. and nothing takes away from that. I think it's a fantastically edited film. It's fantastically filmed. But I think where I am holding back a few points is what the film is trying to do. I know everyone is thinking, did she do it? But I don't think that's the point of the film, you know? Right. But the film wants us to think it is, but it's not. And I wonder if some part of me was hooked on the latter part of the film because it starts getting into the gruesome details and the quote-unquote gossip of it. You know, as the film reveals, the son cannot see because it's, it's his parents' fault. And uh, yeah. she's bisexual. She has an open marriage. So, of course, she's a bad mother. So, of course, she's a murderer. Yeah. And I think the film sets out to not make you fall into these traps but you do and i don't know if i'm being played so i'm just uh, i'm just not sure <laughs> i found it engaging I, I found it especially as the film went on i found it engaging because i was so worried about the kid he's wonderfully played and he's he becomes the chief witness although he can barely see i mean as, as a result of an accident his fate is so intertwined with that of his mother's mm -hmm. i found it really compelling what they did to make it so that he isn't automatically in her corner mm -hmm. right and it yeah what is weird about this movie is you can't talk about it it's so hard yeah. to talk about it <laughs> yeah almost all the details of it are well i was gonna say giveaways except they're not because you can go all the way through it and still not be absolutely certain about guilt or innocence which is in theory the question that you're asking it is however the question that becomes important in the film because of the kid. Yeah. I think the thing you come away with mostly is how messy the French legal system seems to be <laughs> because, you know, in the press notes, Tria makes a point of saying it's much less structured than the American system, which is why in that courtroom, it seems like anybody can just shout out anything at any time. And when the film devolves into this thing about, well, it's two writers living together and what is fiction and what is truth, that felt very academic and forgive me, very French. And I was kind of losing interest there. But then... As you say, Badatri, it sets up some pretty sexist arguments that the prosecution 
brings in about, you know, how she is hmm. emasculating Sam well. Which you expect them to bring up, you know. If you're a courtroom drama person, you know what's going to come up. Exactly. And that's what I thought was, I like that it didn't just stay academic. It became a tool that was used against her. And, you know, we keep saying, folks, that this is not a whodunit. It's not a cozy mystery. The reason we're saying that is because I'm not entirely sure the marketing team knows that. I'm not sure the marketing <laughs> team has seen this movie because, you know, when you go into a press screening, there's like a big title card up on the screen with a, you know, all the promotional materials and the hashtag. And the hashtag for this movie is, did she do did it? She do it? <laughs> and well, first of all, I'm sitting in that and I know this is a French film. So I'm using my three years of high school French and I'm like, Deeds Hedois? What is Deeds Hedois? I do not know this word, Hedois, um, because I'm an idiot. But, I mean, despite all the blood spatter analysis, the fall that gets anatomized here isn't Samwell's. It's, it's this marriage. Mm -hmm. And Daniel says at one point, I just need to understand. And that's what the film's about. It's not about assigning blame or guilt. It's about understanding that this marriage was dead long before <laughs> Samwell was. Right. But this is where I think you're picking up some of that struggle, Badatri. And Bob, I want, to, I want to go to you because if understanding the nature of this marriage is the goal, which I think it is, the film really challenges itself because it constructs this massive obstacle by killing off Samwell. So for the first couple hours of this film, we are only getting her perspective. We, we never truly get access to Samwell's take. We only get to see him in a flashback argument, which has been recorded and is submitted as right. evidence. Mm -hmm. There's so much waiting on that argument. How do you think it worked in the film? Well, it's really compelling because it feels a lot of the movie is designed to be not artificial exactly, but you're in situations where a lawyer is talking to a client or a prosecutor is asking questions and everything is essentially artificial. Mm -hmm. And then you get this bit of life that was recorded, that the film recreates it in toto. Mm -hmm. But what the people are hearing is what was recorded. And mm -hmm. that feels lifelike in a way that is scary. You're watching something that is is really tough. And any, anyone who's who's been in any kind of a relationship would recognize the, the fraying of it. It is horrifying to watch. Yeah. At the same time as it's not entirely conclusive one way or another. Right. I, I remember afterwards she says something like, that's a moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's not the whole story. And of course, that's always true. Yeah. But it's it's a really compelling piece of information for you. Mm. It's great. It, it makes the last part of the picture just sort of snap together. And speaking of French legal dramas and like the theatricality of it, I think another French film called Saint-Omer mm -hmm. does a fantastic job of a legal courtroom drama. And I, I'd like to spend a minute talking about this comparison because like Triade, Alice Diop also has, uh, you know, started out with documentary. And you see that mm -hmm. in both these films, this what gets called as the fly on the wall camera work. And she uses a lot of that. But for me, honestly, the parts I really enjoyed the most or like that quote unquote did it for me are the ones that are outside of the courtroom. Like there's mm. this part where there's a reenactment of a said argument. Yeah. There's a reenactment mm -hmm. of the said fall. Mm -hmm. And again, maybe I was expecting a preminger. I really wanted to bite into that more. Yeah, I mean... Hmm, that's interesting because, I mean, I th I th the fact that the thing that's happening in the courtroom is that we can see it, but the people in the courtroom can't, right. which kind of has mm -hmm. this echo of the fact that Daniel can hear things, but he can't see them. The fact that they're both speaking English, 
so that they can both be on common grounds means that, you know, we know so many things about this marriage. It was a negotiation from the jump. They both feel like a need to hold on to some sort of power. It also means that when they're talking to each other about these incredible intimate things, they're still kind of mediating it, right? Because they're both fluent in English, but there's something missing from their communication if you're not speaking in your native tongue. It's a compromise. Uh, just in terms of the acting, Sandra Huller's amazing. I mean, that that is the most naturalistic argument I think I've seen in a long time because in fiction and movies and TV, when characters have arguments, they're incredibly articulate and structured. Mm -hmm. And people cite examples and respond to exactly what has just been said, which is not the way arguments work <laughs> in real life. They are messy. They are circular. They double back. They're not about convincing the other person. They're about airing grievances, scoring points, opening old wounds. And they're not about what's actually being argued about. So there's about everything that's been simmering below the surface forever. And that's why they go on and on. And that's why... They're exhausting. And that's why I could watch Huler argue all day because she's uncompromising, right? The way that she shows us that this character loves Daniel is in small moments without telegraphing it with a lot of the cliches of maternal warmth, you know? And I think it's interesting that she becomes most what we consider outwardly passionate when she's talking about her work. Yeah. yeah. You know, good yeah. for her. <laughs> I don't think she's interested in letting us in. She doesn't judge the character, so she doesn't want us to, but of course we do. Because like there's a scene where she's outside sharing drinks and cigarettes with her lawyer late at night. Is she working him or are they just sharing, you know, drinks and cigarettes? Or why not both? Yeah. But also she deserves it given the days she's been having. She deserves a laugh and a smoke. <laughs> Absolutely. She is not trying to make Sandra likable. She's just succeeding mm -hmm. in making Sandra real. Yeah. Part of the reason that she seems so real, I think, is that, you know, you see – Huller is remarkable in that you can read her eyes in ways mm -hmm. that are you – know, she's a cinema actress, right? I mean, she's Absolutely. she's just designed for it. And you see things flashing in her eyes, especially when she seems to be searching for the word and then shifts languages. Mm -hmm. You realize that she's got this thought and she wants to express it and, and it's not possible in whatever language she's in at that mm -hmm. moment. Mm -hmm. You believe everything about her – which is why it's so fascinating that the guilt or innocence question is so hard to read. I mean, you really do feel like you know what she's thinking. Yep. Yeah, and it's not just the eyes, right? Like there are parts of the film that's like honing in on her mouth as she's talking. And mm -hmm. and I agree, if, if it was somebody else, I would have probably lost interest in the film hours ago. Yeah, uh, and Bob, you mentioned the kid played by mm -hmm. Mila Machado Gruner. That kid is just fantastic. At some point, he becomes the crux of the film. Yeah. We see him in real time learning things about his parents that no kid should learn in so public a way. Mm -hmm. And the smart thing about it is he cannot see that everybody in the courtroom is staring at him to get his reaction to what he's learning. But the actor shows us that this kid can feel them looking at him. Right. Mm -hmm. Feel that. It's just such a small but such a powerful moment in the film. I was blown away by him. I thought he was really extraordinary. I, I think it's where we tend to focus on Cooler because, well, because she's masterful. Mm -hmm. But that child is doing a lot of the heavy lifting in terms of suspense in the film. You really don't know which way he's going to shift mm -hmm. and what he's discovering. And I think he was 12 when he was filming Hmm. Yep. Wow. I can't imagine some of that. There's a moment where he's talking to the judge and the judge is talking about how she's going to make him leave the courtroom for a little bit because hmm. 
they have to be able to talk about what's going on in the marriage without worrying about how it affects him. And she says, I don't want it to hurt you. And he mm. says, I've already been hurt. Yeah. And I just thought, oh, oh, <laughs> you yeah. know. But he also says that I'm going to obsess over this and look at social yeah. media and read stuff online. That's right. You know, I think it's better for all of us if you just let me into the room instead of me, you know, what we would say in America, doom scrolling, <laughs> my mother's life. Yeah. This film contains a fascinating use of an instrumental version <laughs> of the 50 Cent song, Pimp. Uh, Badatri, any thoughts on its use? Well, first of all, as someone who can also sleep through anything, I <laughs> absolutely <laughs> believe Sandra Huller when she says, Sandra Huller's character, when she said she just slept through her husband playing that song, which, which I think some reviewers note that could probably bring in an avalanche. It's so loud, uh, <laughs> given where they are. Uh, and I think it's an interesting choice of song because, of course, you know, it's called Pimp. It feeds into the misogyny you want to be the cause of this apparent alleged murder, perhaps. Like, oh, my husband is so misogynist. He listens to 50 Cent, so I killed him. <laughs> um, it's funny. It's funny that that is the song. But again, like, you know, uh, neon playing at multinationalism, perhaps. But I was also yeah. reading an interview somewhere where she, um, Trier says that she was going back and forth between Jolene and this song. And I oh, would man. love huh. to be in the room yeah. <laughs> where this song wins. Oh, Jolene would be really a little too on the nose. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Bob, any 50 Cent thoughts? <laughs> Not 50 Cent thoughts. I, I was thinking about uh, what the character of Sandra does later with music. Remember when uh, the kid is, is sitting at the piano and she has been forbidden to talk about the trial with him. And mm -hmm. he's pounding away at the piano and she sees his stress and goes over and sits next to him and sort of gently guides him into Chopin instead of what he's playing. And it's a lovely mm -hmm. moment. It's really, it's really evocative and she doesn't have to say a word. She takes him to a quieter place and it's, it's lovely. And it's, it's entirely musical and it's, it, I guess it signifies that uh, Justine Trier knows what she's doing with music. Yep, absolutely. All right, well, we want to know what you think about Anatomy of a Fall. Find us at Facebook.com slash PCHH. That brings us to the end of our show. Badatri D. Chaudhry, Bob Mondello, thank you both for being here. It was great. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. And it's always such a pleasure hashing out films with Bob and you, Glenn. <laughs> oh, I appreciate that. We appreciate it, too. I agree. This episode was produced by Hafsa Fathima, Liz Metzger, and Thomas Liu, and edited by Mike Katzif. Our supervising producer is Jessica Reedy, and Hello Come In provides our theme music. Thank you for listening to Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. I'm Glenn Weldon, and we'll see you all tomorrow. That's the voice of Miss Gloria Jones, the original artist behind the song Tainted Love. But I don't think she's ever gotten the credit she deserves. I could not agree more. So let's shed some light on the untold story of Tainted Love. On Lost Notes from KCRW, part of the NPR Podcast Network. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Online. Is your child asking questions on their homework you don't feel equipped to answer? IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. One subscription gets you everything. One site for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And NPR listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com NPR.